Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast big interview. I'm flying solo this week as Saul is away and my guest is an old friend of the podcast, author and journalist Colin Freeman. As well as writing great books, Colin is to my mind one of the finest foreign correspondents around, a veteran of numerous wars whose adventures include being shot in the backside in Iraq and kidnapped by Somali pirates. He's currently reporting from Ukraine for my old paper, The Telegraph, as he's been doing since the start of the current war. And he's now down in the Donetsk region. Colin, welcome back to the show. And thanks so much for taking the time out of your hectic schedule to talk to us. Um, Before we go on to the offensive and uh, what you're seeing down on the front lines now, uh, I understand you've also recently been up in the border near Belgorod, which, of course, is the area where Ukrainian-backed Russian units have been operating inside Russian territory. Can you tell us what's going on there? Who are these guys and what are they up to? Uh, Yes, Patrick, so just had a bit of background noise there. Um, The units that have been doing the cross-border incursions into Belgorod are primarily groups of Russian nationalists. There's essentially two groups of them, one called the uh, the Russian Volunteer Corps and the other one called the um, the Free Russia Corps. And um, they include a number of fairly unsavoury characters, some of whom are often labelled as outright neo-Nazis. I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, essentially what these groups have been doing is, is mounting um, fairly serious sort of, you know, battalion-sized incursions into Russian territory, going into villages, briefly capturing them, uh, having skirmishes with local Russian security forces, and then briefly raising the flag in those villages and declaring them part of a a free Russia. Now, in terms of the sort of bigger scheme of the war, these are not, uh, you know, strategic victories, as it were, but the idea is to make it clear to the Kremlin that um, the war in Ukraine is going to be coming onto their borders, um, or rather into their borders, and also to tie up, essentially, Russian units that might otherwise be deployed elsewhere rather than just on border security duties. Um, there's been about three of these raids. Most of them happened uh, in the past month. They have apparently caused concern considerable panic and concern on the in the Belgorod region and they appear to have been carried out with the backing of Ukrainian intelligence because they, they first of all these attacks have come from the Ukrainian uh, side of the border that's where these these forces have come from and they've been using um, you know um, armored vehicles um, large groups of armed troops etc uh, these are not sort of the, the work of kind of just you know secret underground partisans the, these people clearly have backing from somewhere and um, there is, however, a bit of a presentational issue, uh, I think it's fair to say, around the fact that Ukrainian intelligence has clearly backed these partisans because of their backgrounds. A number of them have backgrounds as neo-Nazis and uh, the le- one of the leaders of the groups is a, a sort of known football hooligan who's been involved in the dust-ups, street brawls um, at um, football matches in Europe over the years. Um, So they're not particularly savoury characters. They don't have any great like for Vladimir Putin, but I wouldn't certainly describe them as being kind of 
cuddly or, or, or you know, pro-Western partisans necessarily who are going to be who are keen to sort of establish a um, democratic Russia were they ever to take over. What they, I, I think, are being used for really essentially is pawns, um, attack dogs to stir trouble on Russia's border, um, a, a border that is currently largely unpleased or doesn't have much defence along it, uh, along hundreds and hundreds of miles around the Belgorod region, um, but which now, in the light of these attacks, will have to uh, have uh, large numbers of Russian security forces based on it, which obviously means fewer for the, um, the, the fight to deal with the counteroffensive in eastern Ukraine. Now, just going back to the presentational issue, one could say this is perhaps not ideal. This plays into the hands of Vladimir Putin saying that Ukraine is a hotbed of neo-Nazis. On the other hand, the Ukrainian intelligence chief uh, is known as something of a maverick. And I think this would count as one of those times when faced with it with what is this you know pretty much an existential war the ukrainian intelligence services view is you have to fight dirty and you fight with whatever you've got yeah well so they seem to serve a useful purpose at the moment but may become an embarrassment later on let's get back to the um, counteroffensive where are you now and what sort of shape is it taking from your standpoint well, I'm in um, a town called Pokrovsk, which is just east of um, the city of Donetsk, which is one of the ones that fell into separatist hands in 2014 and has been so ever since. Uh, I think you could probably describe it as the, the de facto capital of separatist-held eastern Ukraine. That essentially puts me at, the, uh, I suppose, the east end of the line where the counteroffensive is concentrated, Donetsk lies not far, um, f- just further east from uh, Donetsk, very roughly, is the city of Bakhmut, which um, uh, your listeners will probably be familiar with as being the focus of the, um, the, the main battle in recent months. The counteroffensive essentially runs west from that region, from the Donetsk stroke um, Bakhmut region, all the way along a kind of line several hundred miles long. I think it's about 300 miles, but I'm off the top of my head, I'm not quite sure, perhaps slightly less than that, 250 miles or so to the city, to uh, around the city of Zaporizhzhia. That's where the sort of the front line lies, if, if you like, a sort of east-west um, front line. And that is where Ukraine is now pushing south to try and take uh, various towns and villages that uh, lie south of there. And ultimately, the goal being to perhaps press all the way towards the Sea of Azov, where if they, if they can reach that point, they can effectively cut Russian troops off from um, the Crimea. I would recommend to listeners that rather than hearing me describe this um, verbally on the podcast, they look at a map because the the terrain of this uh, of, of this region, especially the terrain of Crimea with its seas and its um, and its coastlines being fairly intricate, it, it's not really very easy to describe um, very clearly um, just in a podcast format. Um, well, you're doing you're doing a pretty good job, Colin. I have to say, I have <laughs> uh, a pretty good clear picture from that. The challenge that the Ukrainians have is that um, the fighting we've seen thus far, which has seen Ukraine take a number of uh, liberate uh, a number of villages along this front line. Not that many. I think we're talking about maybe a dozen or so villages or something um, whose names have cropped up mainly on on the press feeds actually of the various different 
units that have claimed them. They've, they've put out on the, via their public affairs officers footage of the, the soldiers planting the Ukrainian flag in these little villages. I'd say that that's happened about a dozen times so far. Most of these villages are small places that were already in very contested territory, uh, very few people living in them, uh, if any at all. So what we haven't seen is lots of pictures of you know, villagers kind of coming out in jubilant form to regreet their Ukrainian liberators. Indeed, in many cases in these villages, given that this is the, the Russian the predominantly Russian-speaking East, um, some of those who have chosen to stay behind in the villages that were under Russian occupation that have now been liberated may have been quite happy at the fact that um, they were under Russian occupation. So the gains that we know of thus far, i.e., the you know, which is where someone has planted a flag, a Ukrainian flag, and said, hey, hey, we're now here, uh, they're fairly limited, and they're, they're often places that were not that far from where the front line was anyway. I mean, literally a matter of a few kilometres. Then further in, it, the picture gets rather harder to ascertain. That's where the Ukrainians are not really saying much about what they're up to. Um, and it's also where the Russians are saying that the Ukrainians are sometimes suffering significant losses. But uh, again, just to return to the big picture, you have this 200 mile, maybe nearly 300 mile front line. Um, the, the Russian defences, as we understand, get steadily stronger um, as one pushes in from that front line. So you've got these villages that might be a couple of kilometres in, but you, one doesn't get to the real kind of Russian Maginot line, I suppose you might dis describe it as, for about another 10 or 15 kilometres in some places, possibly more than that. So, um, and that's where they've got enormous lines of dragon's teeth, which are the big concrete anti-tank measures, like, you know, sort of big pillars that stick up out the ground, which will stop tanks coming across, um, and where they've got all, all, all manner of other heavy defences. Um, and, and even to reach that, you have to go through large numbers of minefields and, of course, territory that is contested by Russian artillery and attack helicopters and everything else, as well as a, a rather higher presence of Russian air power than we've we've previously seen. So, in effect, you've got a, I, I suppose, from the front line, you've got a, a maybe a 20-kilometre journey to reach the kind of the main Russian defences, and, and it's going to be getting tougher and tougher all the time. I, I don't think it's hard to overstate the difficulties that the Ukrainians are going to be facing as they push along with that. And no one I've spoken to seems to think that this is going to be over before the end of the year, maybe by about October. Yeah. What about uh, Western main battle tanks? Any evidence they're actually been brought into play yet? Uh, I'm afraid, to be honest, the, the only thing I've seen is video footage, which I don't think has been contested. Video footage that's been put out by the Russians of some of the Leopard tanks having been um, crippled, apparently after driving into um, landmines. I don't think I've seen any footage of that happening to a Challenger tank yet, a British Challenger tank, of which there are some out here, but I think they're, in them, they're, they're rather fewer on the ground. Colin, are you surprised by the Russian tactics? They seem to be doing a pretty good job, don't they, of falling back in uh, some sort of order and also managing to launch a few counter-attacks themselves to protect their flanks as they do so. Has that been a surprise to you or indeed to the Ukrainians around you? I don't think it's come as a massive surprise. I mean, the, the Russians have had a long um, period of notice 
um, for th- this, this particular counter-offensive. They've been knowing that something is going to be coming. I won't be the first person to point out on your podcast that um, defending a territory is much easier than uh, attacking it. You, you need a, a ratio typically of three soldiers to one to attack an area in open ground and possibly up to seven to one to take a town or village where there's, there's far more hiding places. So I don't think anybody was expecting the Ukrainians to sort of just find this to be a, a walk in the park. And in a sense, this is the, the reversal of the tables um, that we saw at the beginning of the war when the Russians attacked Kiev and places like that and found the going a great deal harder than um, harder than they expected. Um, I, I have heard people saying, on the other hand, though, that uh, while the Russians are doing OK at the moment, you know, in what is essentially in some ways a bit of a shooting gallery where, you know, you, the Ukrainian forces having to travel over territory that has been laced with landmines and where the Russians can pre-plan everything and all the aces are, are up their sleeves, the longer things go on, the more it may favour Ukraine a bit because um, if they keep up the pressure at some point, the, the Russians may start to sort of buckle a little bit. And at that point, um, you may get the, the floodgates opening. And once there's a bit of a sense of panic, then that may affect Russian morale and so on and so forth. But it's it, it's a long way between speculating on that and uh, actually, you know, seeing for real a total Russian collapse or rout, which I think some people think might be happening if perhaps Ukraine's forces did suddenly have a breakthrough in, in, in one particular spot or the other. It's hard to know whether there really would be that domino effect in terms of morale of, you know, one Russian unit hearing that somebody 10 miles down the front line, had, their comrades 10 miles down the front line had fled, and then at that point them doing the same. But um, it could well be contagious if there is a sense within the Russians that their, their forces are not doing well and that others have, that some of their comrades have decided to make themselves scarce rather than stand and fight. OK, we're going to take a break there. Do join us in part two to hear the rest of our interview with Colin. Welcome back to the Battleground Podcast Big Interview with journalist Colin Freeman. Colin, can you say something about the morale, uh, both among the civilians you've encountered and indeed the troops that you've met in the areas you, you've seen? Um, m- morale is is generally okay, I think. Um, there is a lot of fatigue, as you would imagine, now that we're a year into the war. But I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I would... Um, put a health warning on my remarks. Um, When I meet Ukrainian troops, of course, I meet them as a foreigner, as a foreign journalist, and I think there's a certain message that is deemed fit for my consumption that may not be the mess, you know, that may not exactly match the feelings that they, uh, uh, they have privately about the war and about how things are going. I'm sure there's all kinds of um, gripes and moans um, and outright anger sometimes about the way their own commanders carry on warfare uh, and about whether they've got enough assets and whether they're being used responsibly or whether they're being used as as cannon fodder or, or what have you. Um, I think that's just normal in any warfare for things not to be quite so rosy on the 
uh, as they're sometimes portrayed on the surface. But I, I certainly don't sense any real kind of crisis in morale at all or, or crisis in, in the sense of general purpose. To some extent, I don't think there's people feel that they've got an option here. Putin has forced them into a corner, and no matter how hard it is, they don't feel that they've got any option but to fight, which in a sense makes it a little bit easier um, because it's not like you're looking over your shoulder all the time and thinking, well, you know, why don't we just all surrender or whatever. In terms of the, the soldiers I spoke to last week when we were up on the border, they did also say some, something else that stuck in my mind, which was that um, uh, when we were there, there, there was artillery duels going on, 50 or 60 Russian shells landing in this Ukrainian um, unit sector every day, which sounds pretty hairy to you and me, but um, uh, they said that they'd been fighting um, on the outskirts of Donetsk, I think it was, last year in a battle for a place called Pisky, which I, I don't think actually ended um, particularly well for the Ukrainians. I think they had to concede the territory. There was something like 500 Ukrainians reportedly killed in that particular conflict. And they said, compared to Pusky, this place up near the border is an absolute walk in the park. You know, this is this is nothing. And I think that does tell you that some of these guys have been through really, really, really intense fighting. And I would imagine that if that was bad, being down at Pisky um, uh, last year, then the counter-offensive will be every bit as bad, if not perhaps uh, e even more intense. Because for both sides, I think this, you know, there's a sense that this is perhaps the, the, the crunch time of crunch times. Um, you covered many wars, Colin, as I said in the uh, intro. Can you tell us how this uh, compares in terms of operating as a journalist? I think this is something readers are very interested in. For example, do you, is there any kind of censorship process? Do you, is your copy vetted before you send it? No, there was, there's no censorship. Um, it is quite controlled, frankly. Sometimes you can, or people people have, been able to spend time with a, a unit on the front lines just doing it through unofficial channels, through personal contacts. There are a lot of volunteer units um, operating here in Ukraine, by which I mean Ukrainian volunteer units, as in, you know, units primarily raised from, a, you know, men in a particular town or a particular region or some pre-existing fraternity who form, who join the Territorial Guard or local self-defence units back at the start of the war or indeed sometimes before then during the, uh, after the, the 2014 annexation. So the fact that you've got a lot of volunteer units who are, are theoretically incorporated into the Ukrainian military but you know, whose roots lie outside of the, the, those state structures, that does give you a little more latitude to spend time with them in a way that you could never do, for example, with the British Army. And that does sometimes allow people to get a bit more of an uncensored view of the conflict, especially if they're able to spend maybe, a, you know, two or three weeks with a particular unit. Um for me at the moment, having come out here, been called out here specifically to cover the counter-offensive, you're more reliant really on the, the more formal media access structures, which usually means um, going through a, a media or public affairs officer who will then um, get you, once, once you have the relevant permission, who will then get you up to the, the front lines. Once you're up there, I mean, you know, it's 
they don't tend to sort of censor censor too much and you know it, it can be fairly dicey up there because you know you're within range of artillery and so on and so forth so there's not much there's a bit less sanitization there where they can be sensitive is about that they don't tend to discuss casualties and they are very sensitive about discussing any operational details in regards to sort of where where precisely you are or what you know the composition of um, your forces are in relation to the Russians or any of the other kind of stuff that you would you could envisage being of potentially potential intelligence use for the opposite side. It sounds to me, though, Colin, like there's no opportunity for the kind of freelance activity that you and I have got up to in the past where you um, you actually strike out on your own. It sounds like we were, when we were talking earlier, you said this is a grown-up war. Can you expand a little bit more, tell the listeners what that means? Yes, I mean, yes, this is, this is you know, two proper armies fighting on a well-established front line with about maybe, you know, that stretches for hundreds of miles with about perhaps 10 or 15 miles of, of no man's land sometimes in between. And, yeah, I mean, you could imagine people, perhaps journalists, perhaps being able to sort of just pick their way in and out of that front line, driving uh, down to this forward position and uh, uh, or going to that forward position and generally coming and going as they please. When when you're up there in person, though, you realise that, uh, well, you, you could do that, but A, they don't tend to want you to, and and B, it can be risky because if you're driving through the contested territory, changes all the time. And quite apart from being hit by the Russians, if you're driving down a road where you don't necessarily know who's in control, then you don't know who might decide to have you in their sights. You're a, a lone civilian car if you're usually if you're press and even if you've got press marked on the car not everybody is going to take that for granted and not everybody especially during the heat of a conflict is is going to take a chance that that particular civilian car driving down the road um is is a benign neutral actor and you take a substantial risk and unless you're really really good at reading a battlefield um with some decent advanced level of how artillery plays out and so on and so forth uh, I certainly am not that is the sort of situation or the sort of scenario driving around unilaterally as sometimes happens in previous conflicts where where you can you know end up coming unstuck and it has happened in previous conflicts as well in places like Iraq at the beginning of the Iraq war where uh, people I think essentially unwittingly Strayed um, into the line of fire of um, of one side or another, who often opened yeah, fire. Terry, Terry Lloyd of ITN being um, being one of them. I was uh, alongside it well nearby when he got killed, but killed by just to make underline what you're saying by the Americans, not by the Iraqis. That was one of the examples I was just thinking of. Yeah, and w- without going into the specifics of that particular case, I, I remember it myself because I was heading out to Iraq that time as myself as a freelancer and thinking. Hmm, you know, how do I avoid that happening to me? And um, I, I think one of the morals of those sorts of stories, again, without dwelling on the particular particulars of Terry's case, is that often uh, it's not so much necessarily that uh, um, you're being specifically targeted uh, for being pressed, but just that you, you happen to be a vehicle driving down a road where um, there are a lot of soldiers and a lot of forces that are in a state of agitation and, and that they... 
uh, th they might decide to shoot first and ask questions later. And uh, that is obviously something that is, um, uh, is to be avoided if you possibly can. I'm not going to, to keep you any longer or much longer, Colin, but I know this is a, it's, it's a silly question, essentially, but I would be interested in hearing your reaction to it. When do you see that the tempo rising again and, and we move on from this kind of, we're still uh, really at, at a kind of the opening phase, aren't we? When, when do you expect to see the main event? And insofar as you, you feel capable of saying this, how do you think it's going to go? Well, it's, it's worth saying that whenever I mention the word counteroffensive here, there's usually a bit of a blank look or even a frown. People are often sort of saying, look, you know, this, this has been going on for weeks, weeks, months, this battle, and uh, the counteroffensive don't just sort of suddenly start like with a starting gun. You know, it's not like um, uh, D-Day in that, in that sense. For that reason, when, when we are applying for frontline access, we tend not to mention the counteroffensive word because it often irks those that we're trying to spend time with. But most people seem to think that we are, while this certainly looks like a counteroffensive and sounds like a counteroffensive and therefore must be surely a counteroffensive, uh, and, and you, you know, the Ukrainian government has, has acknowledged the start of it as such now, um, after a bit of, you know, humming and awing, this may not be the big push. The big push may come sometime in the future. And I think if I if I said much more, I would be implying that I had access to um, President Zelensky's um, general's military plans, which I certainly don't. We're now sort of talking about the most closely guarded secret on the planet. But I would not be surprised if they've got a plan to, you know, have this level of offensive for a few weeks and then some big sort of strike or, or, or some master strategy will come into play, some clever trick that nobody is quite aware of. But when that's going to be and what it's going to be and where it's going to be and how they're going to do it, um, I think necessarily are things that um, no, nobody really um, outside of President Zelensky's war room is going to have much idea of. That's not, not a very good answer, but I, I think yeah, anybody saying more than that is probably, um, probably not entirely to be believed. Colin, you, you've been very, very generous with your time. Thank you so much for this. It's been absolutely brilliant. Uh, you're doing a great job there. We're very, very grateful. Bravo. And we'll speak very soon. You're welcome. Well, I found that absolutely fascinating. Colin, brilliant interpreter talking to us from the front line. You know, how good does it get? First of all, very interested in, in his view that we really, we're going to be kept guessing for the foreseeable future. We may not know that there and then until it actually happens. As he says, this is probably the most uh, closely guarded secret in the world when the big push will come and uh, its location. Um, interested in his nuanced observations about the morale of both the troops and the civilians. Of course, they're exhausted after all this time, not just the physical strain, but all the emotional, mental strains that go on in a war of this kind. And as he uh, very colourfully, I think, told us, this is uh, really, really as heavy as warfare gets. So these, uh, the unit he was with recently saying they were getting 60 to 70 shells a day, which uh, if you're a civilian, that sounds, um, that sounds pretty grim. But in their eyes, this was like a sort of a bit of R&R &R from the position they've been holding before, which sounds like hell on earth. Um, when we came in at the beginning talking about what's going on in uh, the Belgorod area with these cross-border raids, 
again, fascinating stuff. The Russians have been presenting these so-called you know, liberating units, these, these volunteer legions, as being something less than the noble warriors that they make themselves out to be. And it seems there seems to be there is some substance in that. So, as uh, Colin said, there be some there already are some presentational issues with that, which will probably only get worse. But for the time being, they're doing a useful job in rattling the Russians, I suppose, and also forcing them to keep troops in an area that otherwise might be turned against the Ukrainians on the front line. Um, makes the point that this is, you know, this is a very, very big battle space, 200 miles of front line. And also something that we ought to bear in mind at all times when we're looking forward, which is that uh, the further in you go beyond the first front lines, the tougher it gets for the attackers. He's citing that sort of familiar formula that uh, anyone who's been to done any military history or done any military training knows that the ratio of attacker to defender, you've got to basically have at least three times uh, as many attackers to the defending forces and indeed up to seven to one ratio in your favor if you have any chance of success. So the message overall, I think, is that this is going to be a long haul. It's going to be very, very tough for the Ukrainians, but there's still everything to play for uh, from their perspective and that we're on for a long, hard, hot summer. That's all from me. Do join us on Friday. Saul will be back and we'll be going over the news analyzing, discussing, and uh, trying to make some sense of it. See you then.